Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're a visitor or a guest, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King, and, uh, and I'm glad that you're here with us. Um, if, if I haven't met you, uh, I'd love to meet you after the service, so uh, please find me somewhere, and uh, I'd love to say hello and, and welcome you formally, um, but it is good to have you here. If you have a Bible, please turn with us to John chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your order of service. The passage is printed there. Um, for the last number of weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' I am statements in the book of John. Uh, there's seven I am statements, and this is the seventh one. So we're coming to the end of these statements. And, and I've mentioned that these are, in one sense, autobiographical. They are a way of Jesus communicating to us who he is, what he has come to do, what he is wanting us to know about himself. But they're not simply autobiographical. They actually come in the midst of a context, in the midst of a relationship. And so this morning, this passage, John 15, comes in what has been known the, the farewell discourse. That's what theologians have called it. It's a section of the Gospel of John in which Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure. We heard about this last week. Jesus is about to leave. He's going to be crucified, dead. He's going to rise again. He's going to ascend into heaven, and there he will sit at God's right hand until he will return again. And so last week we heard that that seeming departure, that immediate departure, is creating in his disciples anxiety and concern. And so he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Do not fear. You know the way. I am the way. They're still in the midst of this preparation for his departure, and in preparing them for his departure, Jesus says to them, even though I go away from you, abide in me, remain in me, you are still united to me, the vine. And so that's what he says to his disciples, but that's what he also says to us, that though even now he is reigning in heaven, we are united to him, that we abide in him. So friends, let's read from John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a couple of years ago in uh, 2014, uh, there was a song that was on the lips that had captured the minds and the imaginations of um, 
I would say probably hundreds of thousands of little girls. Um, you don't have to have a little girl in your home to know what this particular song was because it was actually a song that was being played and sung all over the place. It was on the radio, it was in movies, it actually won a Grammy Award and an Oscar. The song was the title track from the movie Frozen. Okay, you guys know this song, right? Uh, that song, Let It Go, right? The, this was the theme of the, the movie Frozen. It was the theme of Queen Elsa's life, right? Queen Elsa. So if you haven't seen the movie, the movie is about the ice queen, Queen Elsa, who, who is this uh, woman who has this incredible power over, over weather, over ice and snow and, and wind and blizzards in winter. She has this incredible power, but her problem is, is she has trouble controlling her power. And so she has great joy or great sorrow. She's anger or angry or anxious, whatever it might be. And the power explodes out of her. And before you know it, the screen is filled with whirling winds and snow and blizzards and ice. And, and so she has this amazing power and, and she can't control it. So she's encouraged to, to hide it, to put it away. And so she creates for herself an, an ice castle. You know, she's, she's away from everyone around her. She won't bring uh, damage or hurt to anyone. She's in this ice castle, hidden, unknown to anyone. Until after a number of years of obscurity, of living on her own, she decides, she erupts with song and says, I'm no longer going to hide. And that's where we get this song, Let It Go. Right, you know the song. This is how it goes, at least portions of it. I will refrain from singing it. But it says, <laughs> for your sake as much as mine, let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go. Here I stand and here I'll stay. The cold never bothered me anyway. Let it go. So that's when she erupts. That's when she declares that she's not going to remain hidden anymore. It's, it's actually a, a climactic scene in the course of the movie. It advances the storyline, the plot. She's now out there for all the world to know that she is this ice queen. But what's interesting is what this song is also communicating to us. It's not simply advancing this story, but it's also communicating a, a particular way in which we appropriate the world. I mean, did you hear it? She said, no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. What is the theme that she's trying to communicate? What is, what is the vision of the world that the writer of this song is trying to, to communicate to us? It's actually the same theme that is picked up on in a poem by William Ernst Henley called Invictus. So maybe you're not familiar with Frozen, so, uh, but maybe you know this poem, Invictus. At the very end of this poem, Henley writes, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'm the captain of my soul. No right, no wrong. I'm free. What is that theme that they are trying to communicate? What are they trying to tell us about our world and our lives in it? Well, I think at the very least what it's trying to inform us about, the way in which it's trying to form and fashion us to appropriate our world is through the lens of self-actualization. That, that we are to be autonomous creatures, that, that as human beings the ultimate determining factor in our lives is ourselves. 
that we are autonomous, that anything outside of us that, that would actually hinder that autonomy, that, that we should throw off those bonds and that we should actually seek self-authentication, that what I need, what we're seeking after is really our own self-autonomy. This is the message of high culture poetry. It's the message of pop culture, right? music and film. It's also actually the message that is in, in around us uh, in our very existence. Everything that we experience actually is communicating this sort of theme, right? From Burger King's, you can have it your way, to Apple's, I everything. We are the master of our soul. This is what is being sold to us. That, that we start to believe that our lives are actually determined by us, that that is the place of true life, of real life. But I have to ask you, like, how's that going? Self-authentication, how, how's that going for you? Well, if we're honest with ourselves, which some of you are because you just laughed, <laughs> we know it's not going very well. And we know it's not going very well because if, if we were really this autonomous, then why is it that every one of us are driven and moved and swayed by the opinions of others? Why is it that we are so concerned with how people might view me, about my actions and my words? Will they think that we're smart enough, that we're successful enough? Why are we so concerned with how people view the behavior of our children or what our possessions communicate to them? Well, it's because we're really not as autonomous as we think we are. And so I've, I think that this, this recognition that we are easily swayed and moved hints at the fact that we are not self-actualizing beings, but actually that we are made, we were created not for autonomy, but for dependence. For dependence. That we cannot fashion and form in us from the bottoms of our stomachs or from our souls, we cannot create in us our own value or worth or purpose or life, but it has to come from outside of us. And that's what Jesus is telling us. He's telling us in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Did you hear it in our passage? He said, you can do nothing apart from me. And so what he's saying is that if you want true life, if you want real life, you have to be connected to him, this vine. He's telling us as his followers, we are not autonomous, we are not self-actualizing, that our life is actually rooted and connected to him. That he is the vine. He is the true vine, the source of life. He is the source of life. Now, this analogy isn't very difficult for us to understand, right? We, we can comprehend this very easily. We have a, a branch and a vine, and if you break off the branch from the vine and you leave it in the grass after a few days, it'll start to wither and die, right? I, I was going to go and rip off a vine and a branch from behind the church office and just leave it out and bring in, show you the dead. But I was a little nervous. I might grab like some poison stuff. <laughs> so, uh, but you guys know what I'm talking about, right? The, the vine sits there, and if it is broken off of the branch, it will eventually die. And that's what, what Jesus is saying about us. He's saying that if we are not connected to him, we will have no life. But what's fascinating about what Jesus says in verse 1 isn't simply, I am a vine, but he says, I am the true vine. He says, I'm the true vine. Now, why does he include this little, 
little descriptor, true vine. Isn't a vine enough? You see, we, we can comprehend this analogy that Jesus is making, but so too could the disciples. You see, this wouldn't have been lost on them. See, they understood what this imagery of vine meant because the imagery of vine is actually rooted in the Old Testament. It's there all over the place. For instance, in Psalm chapter 80, which is uh, the psalm of reflection in the beginning of our service. In Psalm 80, the psalmist is singing to God and he speaks of the vine. And this is what he says in Psalm 80. He says in verse 8, You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Okay, so this vine is clearly Israel. Right? Israel was brought out of Egypt. They were in bondage. God delivered them and brought them, and he took them to this land. That's where, that they, where they were to be planted and rooted. And do you remember what the mission of Israel was to be? That as they went into this land, they were supposed to be a blessing. And it wasn't just a blessing for themselves. As they were rooted into the land, this land was supposed to be a beachhead for their mission to bring blessing to the nations. That was the promise that God made through Abraham. I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing to all the peoples of the world, so that all the peoples of the world would know of this life, of this goodness, of this peace, this shalom. That was supposed to be what they were doing. And the psalmist gets at that in verses 9 through 11. He says this vine was brought out, was to take deep root and fill the land. It was expansive. The mountains were covered with its shade the mighty cedars with its branches. Israel was supposed to be a vine of protection and of blessing, of bringing life. But Israel failed, right? We, we know this. In fact, the, the prophets pick up on this language of vine as well. In Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea, they refer to Israel as the vine, but they speak of the vine failing to produce fruit. And so when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he is making a statement of, of contrast. He's contrasting himself with Israel. Where Israel failed, I will succeed. How Israel failed to be this vine of blessing and of life, I will be it. That he is the source of true life. He is the one who will bring the peace that Israel was supposed to, be, to bring. He is the better Israel. But he doesn't just succeed where Israel failed, he succeeds where everything fails. I mean, I already alluded to the fact that, that we think at times and we live at times as though we're autonomous creatures. That our own autonomous efforts, those are, are false vines, right? They're, they're more like kudzu. Y'all know what kudzu is. <laughs> we don't have kudzu in Missouri. But as soon as we moved into the south, there it was, everywhere, right? Just taking over. And what does kudzu do? It kills. It doesn't bring life. It actually encircles the tree, and it destroys it, just like that vine that Glenn mentioned in Costa Rica. It destroys it. And that's what all our autonomous efforts do. They don't bring life. They bring death. But Jesus isn't like that. He's the true vine. He is the source of life. And the life he gives, he gives out of love. He gives out of love. We see love first displayed in this passage in the fact that Jesus initiates. Now, if you're like me, when you read this passage, and I've read this passage I don't know how many times, I fixate and focus on the imperatives. They're all over the place, right? Like abide, abide, abide. Do, do, do. 
right? Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. And I run to those places, and it sounds like Jesus is saying that we initiate towards him, right? Keep my commandments, then you will abide in me. Now, we need to talk about commandment keeping and obedience, and we're going to when we get to fruit bearing. But, but before running to the commandments, look at what Jesus says immediately before verse 10. In verse 9, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, this is a very important verse. It's a very important verse for understanding the context in which we are to keep commandments. You see, Jesus shows love for us before he says, obey me, keep my commandments. He initiates relationship to us, and then he says, keep, obey, abide. And the reason why he initiates towards us is because this is something that we can't do towards him. We can't unite ourselves to him, and so Jesus has to unite himself to us. He shows his love to us even before we could love him. That's what John says in his first epistle, right? That, that this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us. And so before Jesus ever tells us to obey or to keep his commands, he says, I love you. I love you. You are united to me. You are a part of my vine. But this love of God is not only reflected in the fact that he initiates towards us, that we are united to him, but this love is shown that while we're abiding in Christ, the Father takes all our unproductive growth and he removes it. He prunes us. That's what we see in verses 1 and 2. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Literally, that word is gardener. My father is the gardener, so if you're a farmer, gardener, you're in good company, right? <laughs> every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. He prunes. So we, we all know that uh, plants uh, grow unproductive growth, right? So if you've grown a tomato plant, you know that, uh, you know, you've, you plant it in the ground, you, you pour water on it, you give it plenty of sun. And if you leave it, if you just water it and then walk away and you never actually examine the plant, you never care for it, sooner or later, there's going to be things growing on it that you don't want, right? So the, the plant, the, the main part of the plant, right, eventually we start getting those branches coming off. But at, the, at that elbow, right, at the corner where the, the branch is coming off, what starts to grow there if you leave it and don't, don't prune it? What, what are those things called? Suckers, that's right, suckers. Okay, so um, if, you, if you leave those suckers there and you let them keep growing and growing, what's going to happen, right? The plant just gets unruly. It gets massive. It's tipping over. It's on the ground, right? And it, it will take over. It'll just become enormous. And so a lot of gardeners, not all, but a lot of gardeners, what do they do with those suckers? They get rid of those suckers, right? <laughs> you sucker, get out of here, right? And we cut them and we destroy them and we throw them away. Into the compost you go. Um, and that's, that's what we do. And it's not just to keep it under control and manageable, but there's a greater purpose behind it. Because when you rip off that sucker, what you're doing is you're helping the plant because now more energy can go towards growing fruit rather than suckers. And that's what God's doing to us. You see, when he prunes us, when he removes that unproductive growth, Jesus is speaking metaphorically about our sin. 
God looks upon us and he sees this sin that is still alive and is still working and that is still growing at times and he goes and he starts plucking and pruning and removing. This is what he does for us. This is actually what Hebrews 10 is talking about when Hebrews 10 talks about how we in our struggle against sin, God disciplines his people. He disciplines by removing that sin by showing it to us, and he does it for our good. Now, it doesn't feel very good, does it? (laughs) I mean, to have our sin revealed? I mean, just, you know, you don't have to show, you know, show of hands, but, but how many of us like it when people call us out on our sin, right? It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel nice to have it revealed to us, to have it removed from us. And that's what God is doing, He's doing it even though it doesn't feel good, even though it's not exactly what we wanted in that very moment. He's doing it for our good. And it's something only he can do. He uses secondary means like one another, the body of Christ and his word, but but it's him ultimately that is removing, that is plucking, that is pruning, that is tearing away our sin. And he does it because he loves us. We can't do it for ourselves. This is like in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. This is my favorite of the Narnia books. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, uh, Eustace, that, that little boy, you know that little boy, who is greedy and selfish, and he is the kid no one wants to be around, and you don't want him as your kid, right? Like he, is like, he is a dragon on the inside. And he finds this cave and it's filled with jewels and gold, and the greediness of his heart takes over, and the dragon on the inside actually is manifested into the outside, right? He actually becomes a dragon. He's got the tail and scales and the big snout. He becomes what he really is on the inside. And then Aslan approaches him, the lion, right? Jesus, the Jesus figure in this story. Aslan comes to Eustace, and he says, you will have to let me undress you. And Eustace, the dragon, reflecting back on what has happened, he says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate, so I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart, and when he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. That's what what God does to those who are in Christ. It doesn't feel good, but he starts ripping and pulling and peeling and removing and pruning all those things, all those things that are unproductive, all those things that are reflective not of abiding in Christ, but abiding in sin. He starts removing it and pulling it away and taking it off of us. And it doesn't feel good, and yet it is for our good. It's for our good that he peels and cuts and prunes so that that we would actually look like those who are abiding in Christ. You see, that's why he does it. It's not simply so that he would remove our sin and we would have this gaping wound in this hole, but he actually then fills that hole. He fills it. You see, this love that is shown by Jesus initiating and the Father pruning, this love, it produces fruit in the place in which he is pruned. 
That's what he says in verse 8. Jesus says, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. There it is, produce fruit. So, so what is this fruit? Well, clearly it's obe- obeying him, right? Commandment keeping. It's hearing what Jesus says that we are to do and doing it. But ultimately what this bearing fruit is, is Christ-likeness. That we actually start to look and reflect and be more like Jesus. That that is what we are to do and to be. You know, I mean, just, just think about the analogy, right? Like if, if we have a grapevine, you plant a grapevine in your backyard, and you go out there after a little bit of time, and there are peaches and pears and apples on it, you would think there's something seriously wrong with that vine, right? Like you're going to dig it up and maybe send it off to a lab and find out what happened to your grapevine, because grapevines produce what? Grapes. And those who are connected to the vine of Christ, what are they supposed to produce? Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. The same is true of us. That as we abide in Jesus, we produce fruit that reflects Jesus. That's what he says in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Did you hear it? We are to do the very same things that Jesus did. That as we abide in him, we are looking more and more like him. Now listen, most of us don't have a problem with this, right? We, we don't have a problem with this idea of looking more like Christ, of producing fruit in this sort of a way. This, this isn't our problem. If, if we slow down and we read verse 8, we have a different sort of problem. It's that little word, much. Much fruit. I mean, how much is much? And who determines how much much is? I mean, is my much determined by your much? Is your much determined by my much? Right? Like, how, how do we figure this out? That little word, much, it can cause so much comparison and competition. It can cause us to think far too little of ourselves and far too lofty of ourselves. And so let me just encourage you this morning. Don't let that word, much, hang you up. Let me encourage you instead to think that your, your fruitfulness is not determined by the perceived maturity of another and how we measure up against another. No, much isn't defined as advancement by, beyond another. Much is defined by Jesus himself. Do you remember the, the parable of the sower and the seed that Jesus gave? The sower went out, he sowed the seed, and it fell on different soils, and the fourth soil was the good soil, and up from it sprouted life. And what did he say about it? Some were 30 and 60 and 100-fold. He didn't didn't get angry at the 30-fold for only producing 30-fold, and he didn't celebrate the 100-fold for producing 100-fold. He didn't say to the 30, why can't you be more like that? And the same is true of us. I don't know what your much is. And I don't know what my much is. And we should not be concerned with trying to determine, based on one another, what much looks like. Instead, we should be free, instead of comparison, to simply focus on abiding in Christ, of giving our attention to abiding in him and him abiding in us. That's what he says that we do. That as we abide in him, his word abides in us. And through abiding in him, this fruit is produced. It's produced. 
He does it in us. So this fruit, it's Christ's likeness. He determines what it is. He is working in our hearts to make us more like himself. And this fruit is evidence that we belong to him. That's what he says in verse 8. You bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So as we're connected to the vine, as we're bearing more fruit, as we're looking more like Jesus, this is revealing to the world and to one another that we are his. Our fruitfulness, it, it doesn't unite us to the vine. It proves we are united to the vine. And we know this, right? Like, as we spend time with people, they start rubbing off on, one, on us. We start looking like them and acting like them. I mean, like, ha- have you guys ever no- seen those um, married couples who have been married for, like, 20, 30, 40, maybe even 50 years, and they start to, like, physically look like one another? Have you ever no- seen that? It, I mean, it's just the most bizarre thing that, has, that happens, right? You go back and look at their wedding photos, and they're clearly different, right? <laughs> Obviously. Um, different characteristics, different hair types, all these sorts of things. But over time, they actually start to physically look, at, look like one another. It's just strange. Um, but it doesn't just happen physically, right? It happens in our mannerisms and our characteristics. So this is happening to me and Christ, or me and Kat. Um, I hope it's happening to me in Christ as well. I hope so. I hope I'm becoming more like him and him less like... Anyway, um, but it's happening to me and Kat. Not, not that she's looking more like me. That, that's probably a good thing, right? I'm thankful for that. Um, but, uh, but in our mannerisms, somewhere along the way, uh, we both started doing this little, uh, this little response to people when someone says something interesting. It's, it's just a, a mover of the conversation forward. It, it fills that little silent gap. We both go, huh, huh, I'm from Boston, huh, that's cool. I have four kids, huh, nice, right? This is what we do. I don't know who did it first. Maybe Kat did it and, you know, she's rubbing off on me or maybe I did and she's parroting me. I'm not sure which, which happened. But somewhere along the way, we both started with this response, huh. And the really bizarre thing is when we both do it at the exact same time in the exact same conversation. So it's like stereo. Huh. <laughs> now y'all are going to be looking for it, right? You're going to be pointing it out to us, making fun of us, and that's, that's fine. But the point is, is that it shows that I'm united to her, that I'm connected to her, that somewhere along the way, in some ways, she's becoming more like me and I'm becoming more like her. And we, we, we can't even help it. And in a greater and deeper and more profound way, this is what's happening to all of us with Jesus. That as we are united to the vine, that we are becoming more and more like him in every single way. In every single way that our thoughts become more like his thoughts, our words become like his words. That our actions reflect that we are connected to the vine. That we are becoming more like him. And what's What's crazy about this is that we're, we're still these unique branches, right? We all have our little, little uh, mannerisms and idiosyncratic ways that are unique to us. We're all these unique branches still, and yet even in our uniqueness, we're becoming more like Jesus. He's forming and fashioning our hearts so that we respond as he would respond, and we live as he would live. We're looking more and more like the vine. You see, friends, when Jesus unites us to himself, when he gives us life, when he shows us love, this life-giving love, it, it changes everything about us. 
It changes everything about us so that now every part of us is united to him so that we are no longer our own. We are not autonomous. We are no longer our own, but we belong to him and he belongs to us. We are his and he is ours. He's the source of life, the lover of our souls, the one who is making us more like him. He, he is the true vine. He's the true vine that we have been united to and it is him and him alone that we abide. Friends, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have awakened it in our hearts new life, that you have shown us your love and that you are creating in us desires, longings, actions, works that are reflective of you. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to form us, that you would prune the sin of our hearts and that you would Make us, Father, more into the likeness of your Son, in whose name we pray. And God's people said together,